Hello and welcome to In the Back Room. I'm your host, Mr. Shank. And I'm Mr. Woods. Thank you for joining us and today we're going to talk about um, SOL's 5D and a little bit of 5F. Yeah, so that's going to be mainly discussing the Persian and Peloponnesian Wars, and we'll probably throw a little bit of the Golden Age in there since it does fall in between. Um, and before we get started, we'd like to lead off the show with Timendi Kausa, Esneskire. All right, we can begin. So we want to start with uh, the Ionian Revolt. The Ionian Revolt, which, if you were classifying where Ionia was, you would say on Asia Minor on the western half, correct? Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay, and which everyone kind of living in or around uh, the Aegean is considered Greek. Whether or not they, they say they are, they are Greek. Yeah, and whether or not they lived in what we would today call Greece, they were they were Greek or, or former colonies of people from mainland Greece, so they just sort of um, develop a Greek culture and Greek lifestyle. And so, pretty much the only thing that separates them is the government styles. I mean, they're going to have the they're going to talk you know the same language for the most part, and they're going to have the same religious gods, and they're going to probably eat similar food, look similar, and so we just kind of classify them all as Greeks. So, Ionia is under the rule of the Persians. And this would be Darius at the time, Darius or Darius, however you want to say it. Yeah. And they're tired of being ruled over by the Persians. Mm-hmm. And so they ask, they ask Sparta for help first, don't they? I, I believe so. I know, I know for certain the, the character Aristagoras, who was the leader of kind of that, that province, um, he was Greek and he felt like he was being slighted by, by the king, um, Darius. And so he he definitely enlists the help of I know definitely Athens because that's kind of their mother country where they get where they were colonized from. I think there's a couple other city states that they do go to like um, uh, there's one that begins with an E and I just, it just escaped me um, uh, Eritrea and I'm, I'm sure there's some others too um, to to get some soldiers to help out. Do you know how long it was that they were under the control of the Persians before they decided to revolt? Um, was it just like a couple years? Was it like a couple months? No, I think it was a while. Uh, That's what I thought too. Let me look here. And from five forty BC to when the revolt starts in the four so forty years, forty one years, forty years. Yeah. I thought like maybe a couple. Yeah, it says the cities of Ionia were conquered by Persian five forty or thereabouts. That's interesting. Because that's, I mean, I assume that's under like Cyrus, right? Um, he's yeah. got to be near that. time. Yeah, it had to be around that time. Well, they decide to revolt, and they eventually get help from uh, the Athenians. The Athenians send ships. Do you know how many men ships with that? I don't. Um, that's, not, that's something I'm interested in, but I forgot. Like, yeah, I always I, forget to... I don't know off the top of my head. I know it wasn't like a huge force. It wasn't like they sent 100,000 men, but it was It was enough to kind of... I mean, really, the, the main belligerent part of the Ionian revolt that really kicks the whole thing off was was kind of a, a sneak attack on the Persians. They didn't really know it was coming, the, the burning of Sardis, mm-hmm. which teed them off. But, yeah, I don't think that there was a, a whole massive invading force. I think it was it was more of um, just, just a small, maybe even expeditionary force that was able to capture and then burn uh, Sardis. I'll see if I can find yeah. a, a number. Well, with uh, with that Athens, uh, you have 
Darius being furious that Athens, you know, helped out the Ionians because, the, I mean, the Ionians are under the control of the Persians, and he doesn't basically, like anybody, stirring up rebellion against him. And this will kind of be the catalyst for the beginnings of the Persian War. And he sends over ships and men, 25,000 mm-hmm. uh, roughly. And then he builds the first... Um, the connection in the Dardanelles Strait, right? He builds with the pontoon. I thought he did, and then Xerxes did. Or am I, I wrong on that? I don't know. I know Xerxes did for sure. Yeah. I, I think I don't think he because I don't think he was sending any troops by land. I think it was purely. Why am I thinking? I I, naval. I don't. I mean, I I do know that like the funny thing to me is that he begins this whole invasion, which I mean, it the the land based part of the Persian invasion of Greece starts in like the four. 90s um so the the late 490s so it's um it's coming you know um 10 years after the burning of sardis nearly 10 years after sardis was burned because i mean there were there were multiple conflicts that took place in uh persia in in ionia and and thereabout um but but the funny thing for me was that athens ends their alliance with the ionians and yet he is still mad about sardis sends that uh, invasion force to um, to capture Marathon to make a launch point for basically going and burning Athens, kind of a retribution for the burning of Sardis. And I know that um, I know that they make a point of destroying temples too, because the temple to their goddess um, was destroyed in Sardis uh, by the Athenians, or well, by the Greeks rather. So I have, and this is kind of what I thought. That he did. So obviously Xerxes built the pontoon bridge. Mm-hmm. But according to uh, Herodotus, this is the Greco-Roman history here. Um, and in the histories, several pontoon bridges, the Persian emperor Darius used a 1.2 mile long bridge across the Bosphorus. Oh, so okay. not the Dardanelles, but the Bosphorus, the yeah. Um, and, then, and then they talk about eventually... Emperor Clearly, they did the same thing back mm. in 37 AD. Um, but yeah, he did that way back when. So, did it, just not across the Dardanelles. But I mean, that's, that's something worth talking about, too. Just marking the engineering power of the Persian Empire, and then, of course, later the Romans. Like, I always make the point when we talk about Rome with Julius Caesar's bridge across the, the Rhine. Mm-hmm. It was like 10 days, they put up a bridge, so marched crazy. across, and then we're back. I mean... Yeah, and they disassembled it. Yeah, Just yeah. to show the took might. the whole thing apart, too. Yeah, which yeah. is nuts. Crazy. Wow. And imagine that from the side of the barbarians across mm-hmm. the river, like, what are they doing? Yeah. And they just, like, they're building a bridge. you got to be kidding me. And fast. And I mean, <laughs> fast. Just the engineering core that existed. I mean, Rome, certainly, but in, in Persia as well. It's just mm-hmm. incredible. Like, I remember the one documentary we watched talked about the cables that stretched across the bridge that Xerxes built, and they, they were prized, so prized by the Greeks that they were trophies of war when they captured oh, wow. them. It's just, I mean, uh, when you think about it, it's rope, <laughs> but, it, but it's really technologically advanced for the time, so yeah. it, was, it was kind of yeah. a thing to capture. Memento. Yeah. I mean, technically in basketball, when we win like a championship or something like that, we cut down the, we get a piece of the rope of the net. Yeah. Like we did that. It's like, like even like then when I was in high school and stuff, I'm like thinking like, this is kind of weird. I'm like, for like a day, you're like, oh, the net that we scored, you know, or we won the game. And you're like, I don't care about this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> the next day. But, uh. So anyway, so Darius sends troops over, and they meet uh, at Marathon. Mm-hmm. 
and you have about 10,000 Athenians waiting there, uh, roughly or so. Yeah. Um, there's no Spartans, though. No, no. Uh, in fact, this is where, so so Pheidippides, the, the runner, was sent to Sparta. I know it was like two or three, it was several days before the battle, but it was a two-day run to Sparta, which we talked about last episode, like 140 to 150 miles over land in two days. That's just, like, that's insane. I, I still can't wrap my head around that. I mean, I know, I don't, I honestly, I can't pronounce the Greek word for it. I know it begins with an H, but it's the professional core of runners. Um, and, I mean, I get that it's his job. But still, even if you are a professional runner today, even a professional distance runner, 150 miles in two days across uneven terrain, like, like cross-country in Greece is... He's not wearing Nikes or Asics. No, no, it's, no. So, I mean, it's just it's just insane to me. some small leather straps, and that's about it. Yeah, but I know he shows up in Sparta. They're in the middle of a festival. I don't remember to which, which god in particular, but I know that it's against their laws to fight during religious festivals. Oktoberfest. Unless it's... <laughs> like Oktoberfest, but... Uh, but I, I know, unless it's for the defense of Sparta, they're not yeah. allowed to assemble an army, which... They didn't think Sparta was under threat because it wasn't. So uh, they don't send any troops. Yeah, they said they'll send some whenever the festival's over. But so he runs back, uh, delivers that message, and then they get, yeah, like you said, somewhere between like ten or 11,000 Greeks together at, uh, at Marathon, mainly, mainly Athenians, to fight against the 20-some thousand Persians that are there. So, I mean, that, just that's scary in and of itself. So they, they do wedge themselves into a mountain pass um, and form up the phalanx and uh, find themselves being pretty successful because they outsmart the Persians. Don't they, as soon as the Persians kind of get off the ship, they bull rush them kind of? And because they, they bull rush them first and then they kind of like purposely lead them back. Yeah, yeah. And so that, is that, what's that move called? The, I know, I know where you, where you let the center cave yeah. um, and, and keep the flanks, that's called the, uh, I think it's the double pincer. I was going to say, I was going to say pincer. Something like that. Um, and I know it's, it's used, I mean, it's, Marathon is studied by, um, like scholars of war, and even today, like if you go to a military academy, they're going to go back to ancient Greek battles, especially with, with Greece and, and Alexander and Rome. They study the tactics used because, not necessarily because today, by, their, by today's standards, they're revolutionary, but it's about, it's about studying your enemy, knowing, knowing what you're facing in an enemy, encountering that. So like making sure that your army is there to meet the Persians on the beaches at their ships keeps them from using their cavalry. Um, wedging yourself into the pass keeps them from using their numbers against you. And uh, letting your center cave allows them to just sort of run with their... Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it allows them to run with their what they perceive to be successes and just kind of pile into a, a funnel of Greek spears. Yeah, and as I, I searched it up, and I had to figure out how... I thought, first of all, it was Pinzer with a Z, then I'm like, I think it's the C then. That's German. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, Ger- the German coming out. Pinzer! Um, I went with the, the Pinzer movement, which you, you were right. It's a, a double envelopment. It's a military maneuver in which uh, forces simultaneously attack both flanks, sides, uh, of an enemy formation, while essentially, like you basically, like you said, you know, let them kind of, you push them forward, then you purposely draw back. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that pops up is like a YouTube minute long video of an animation of the Greeks using that pincer movement. Um, they're not the first people to really no, do it. No, I don't it. think it's so. Just, they did it so effectively. Mm-hmm. So, and I know that once they, so, so they are successful against the Persians at Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't kill them all, but but several several thousand. 
um, with minimal losses, and they get them pushed back onto their ships. Now, then I think the most interesting thing is that Persia takes this opportunity to, instead of retreat, they sail to Athens. Yeah. And the Greeks had sent a runner before this to Athens to announce victory, but then upon realizing, hey, the the army is going to Athens, the, the Persians are going to go for Athens, because we're here. The whole army is assembled at Marathon. Mm-hmm. So they hoof it. 26.2 miles. They run back to Athens and beat the Persians who, who <laughs> there who were going by boat. And, like, the Persians, can you imagine? Like, they just wheel up in their boats, and, and here's the Greek army that they just fought, <laughs> already reassembled, waiting on them. Like, at, at that point, it's just, all right, let's get home. Let's yeah, that's, you turn. Call, it, call it quits. So they just basically turn back after that? Yeah, they, they go back to, to Persia. Ah, that's crazy. So I thought, so didn't, didn't Phidippides, though, didn't he run there first ahead of the army and warn the city, though, first? I don't know. I know that in Herodotus he talks about a runner. I don't know if it was actually Phidippides that made that run, because I know Phidippides is named with the run to Sparta. Yeah. I don't know if he's the one, I know it's often attributed to him, but I don't know if he's the one that's, because as far as I know, Herodotus doesn't name him as being the one that runs to Athens. I used to, to say that, but I don't know for sure. That's what I, I thought that that's why, I know that obviously from, you know, Marathon to Athens, that run is considered, but I guess if if he's not the runner, it would be more so the the whole army of Athens. Yeah, would be like the marathon essentially. So I'll, I'll um. Well, if you want to carry us on to that ten year interim, what happens with um with yeah Darius? And, yeah. And so essentially, uh, they like Mr. Wood said, they re- return back. The Persians return back to Persia, and Darius, the leader, the emperor, is not finished. Obviously, if you you get defeated, you have a larger army. You have this massive Persian empire. You don't want to be defeated at all but not by someone that's smaller than you. So he starts building back up his army. He's going to make another um, attack here. And as he's doing this, he eventually dies. Do we know how exactly he died? Uh, Darius? I I don't, but I can probably find out pretty quickly. He he dies, but he has a son. His son is Xerxes. And Xerxes will take on the, the same type of vengeance role as his father. And he's going to finish what his father started and eliminate all the Greeks, especially Athens. Athens, again, from the Ionian Revolt, is the one that starts this um, war, this all-out war. Do you see anything there? No, all I can, all I have been able to find is is failing health, um, and then that was sort of stacked upon by. The, the defeat of his army in Greece, the defeat of an army in Egypt, and I think that just sort of um, took a, a physical toll on him, uh, too, just kind of having to deal with the fallout of your mm-hmm. army, this superior force losing in places where they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so I think the uh, combination of stress with that uh, and already um, uh, some existing illness, it looks like he died in uh, four... 86, 487, somewhere in that neighborhood. So mm-hmm. shortly after Marathon, within within three or four years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, 486. Well, and then Xerxes in, excuse me, 480, he's going to take, and the estimates roll from anywhere from 100,000 to 2 million Persians. Yeah. And keep in mind how large Persia is that, it very well, he could have taken anywhere, anywhere in between there. We have, there's no way of actually knowing exactly how many conscripted, cons- 
conscripted? Conscripted. Conscripted, yeah. I usually tell my students that, like, as far as an army, like, the showing up to fight, probably 300,000, I think. 250, 300,000 is a conservative mm-hmm. estimate. But there very, way, very well may have been close to a million people there because you have to have the support forces for the army, too. So, I mean, it's a traveling city, basically. Yeah, you have an army that true. large. Yeah. And he does, this is where he goes over the Strait of Dardanelles and makes the pontoon bridge out of boats. And he crosses that and makes Europe and Asia connected, you know, connected by pontoon boats. But keep in mind that those waters are rough, too. It's not just like you're sitting in a pond. Those, you know, going through that strait and having water flow in there, it can definitely get rough. So it's impressive nonetheless. And... He takes them and starts marching them, and as he's marching them around, um, you know, around the northern portion of Greece, he's supplying them with those ships mm-hmm. um, that are close by on the shoreline. And, and that's really kind of the key. I mean, people focus on the army, but the fact that you've got a navy supporting that army is what's important. Because what, I mean, what are you going to do? Make a supply caravan all the way from Asia? No, you mm-hmm. have ships to yeah. carry that port. Mm-hmm. You have to. And the Greeks know that they're coming, mm-hmm. and they kind of, they set up, uh, Themistocles is kind of the one that starts it, and he knows, he's kind of the, I guess, the hero of Battle Marathon 10 years yeah. earlier. He's the one pressuring Athens especially to, I think that's when they found the silver mines, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they, they were trying to figure out, what should we do with the silver? And Themistocles, the leaders, hey, let's put that money to good use and let's build some ships because Persia's not going away. Mm-hmm. And they start building ships, and luckily they did because he meets them in um, what's that strait? Artemisium. Artemisium. Yeah, I always forget Artemisium. And so while they're blockading that, which is a similar situation to Thermopylae, mm-hmm. which uh, the Spartans. So how does that exactly go down with the Spartans? So it's a Spartan-led defense. I mean, so we we often like to focus on the three hundred, right? Mm-hmm. The three hundred Spartans. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like six thousand to seven thousand total Greeks there. Um, but Sparta is definitely the leading, uh, even if even if they're not, even if you could argue that they're not, you know, the the majority or the largest city state represented, they are the the professionals with Warcraft, um, and so the three hundred of them that show up are definitely going to be the leading force. And Leonidas, their their king, is the, I mean, he's the mastermind of the land defense at at uh, Thermopylae. Are they having a festival? Like, why wouldn't they send out the rest of them? Um, so, I that that's something that's often brought up. I and I don't know. There's different different things like whether or not uh, he was focusing on the the oracles thing that you know a, a king of Sparta has to die in order for Sparta to be saved. If that's the case, then he's taking a small contingent of men to just go and and die, and that's why he only takes men who had already had sons. Yeah. Um, that, or maybe he just thought, you know, we've got a good enough position that we don't need to empty Sparta. We want to leave men there in case this doesn't work. And, I mean, it's not like he just marched 300 guys up there and left everything else the way it was. They were preparing a, another defense, a second defense at another choke point uh, mm-hmm. near Corinth. Um, so, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, but I always just kind of like to think of it as he probably thought that with the position they had and the, their superior technology as far as what the, how they planned to fight, um, he probably thought that he could make the battle costly enough for Persia that they'd just leave. Uh, um, potentially, yeah. I you know I I don't know because it's not like even even when we talk about kind of how it goes down, it's not like he wasn't prepared for all situations. It mm-hmm. just didn't work out in their favor. Yeah, so they they uh, 
they meet him at the the Battle of Thermopylae, which is that mountain pass, which, you know, it's right along the, the shoreline, and mm-hmm. it's very narrow. They have mountains on either side, so it's, it's like you said, it's a choke point, one of, one of the choke points. And they're there for three days mm-hmm. fighting off, you know, in, in waves, pulses, um, the Persian army. And they can't, the Persians can't break through. No. It's it's a it's at about two hundred yards. I thought it was about how it's like two football fields essentially long. Yeah, and I think I I feel like I remember reading somewhere that at its most narrow point, the most narrow point of the pass, it was only wide enough for for some reason that's sticking in my head that two ox carts could pass side by side. At its narrowest. At its narrowest. So I don't I don't know what the, the what the measurement of two ox cart widths is. I would think somewhere around fifteen feet. Yeah. Um, at its at its narrow. So probably at its biggest is two hundred. Yeah. And so they would yeah. probably have. So they probably weren't right at the entrance way. They probably were like somewhere deep yeah, in there I mean, where it was at its narrowest. I, I imagine they probably found somewhere because you have to you have to think that they they had to have it the line deep enough. So the so the typical phalanx was however wide it needed to be, and then eight men deep. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you've got and it was probably deeper than that at some points, but. We know for a fact that at the end of the battle, the last day of battle, it's only the Spartans that stayed. They sent the other Greeks home, and they advanced to the widest part of the pass. But they still had to be able to maintain a phalanx of eight men deep, at least to start with. They advanced the widest portion yes. of the pass. Wow. Yes. Okay, because I didn't know it that. was it was sort of a come and get us kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, okay. And then and it was come and get us from both sides too. So yeah. I, I mean. Say what you want. Bravery was not a problem they struggled yeah, with. No, uh, definitely not. They welcomed it. They welcomed the battle. They welcomed death at that point. Um, but so I'm trying to I'm trying to remember exactly what the what the width is. I'll see if I'll see if Herodotus has anything for us. I'm do, sure he does. Do a he's keyword a, he's search. A, he's a good guy. He has he has yeah, all the info. Definitely. And so eventually they do break through, the Persians do, and but it gives um, you know Athens and other Greek city-states time to kind of gather their forces and um, you know, mount a defense. And um, from this, you know, they break through Artemisia as well. And you know, this is Xerxes has a path now towards Athens, his path in open up to Greece. And he's making his way there. Now, does he make his way to Athens and gets into Athens before or after Salamis? I think it's after, right? Uh, so he, no, so so basically what happens is when when the Battle of Marathon goes south, and, and by the way, just on measurements here, I'm looking, um, it's, so as far as I can see, because the, the shoreline, the current shoreline is not the same as it would have been then. They said that probably the narrowest, uh, or where they were fighting, was probably less than 100 meters uh, wide, so 300 feet, so a football field, roughly, um, 330 feet. At its narrowest? At its narrowest. So I guess I'm, I'm, I don't know where I pulled the ox carts from. Um, <laughs> the large I, ox carts. I, but this isn't, I'm also not looking at Herodotus here, I'm right. looking at something else. So I don't know where I got that from, maybe, it, I don't know, maybe I just made that up. But, um... Yeah. It just still seems like if it's not something like the ox cart, it would be really, really tough. To, yeah. It, it, with a whole football field and a few thousand men, like, you don't, you can't have it that deep. No. So maybe they didn't. I don't know. But I know that the phalanx is supposed to be operated six men or eight men deep. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, but I don't know. I guess, you know, desperate times. But yeah, um, yeah no. So I know that with the, with the Battle of Artemisium going the way it did, that. 
Um, Themistocles took the Athenian navy back to Athens to get as many people on the ships as he could to evacuate the city to Salamis. He took them to the island at the Straits of Salamis. Which, so I think Persia sort of comes in, burns Athens, and then heads to Salamis. the next battle, okay. Plataea, and then, then the, the rest of the navy swings around to attack the, the Athenian navy. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where, where it all ends. The Athenians bait them into the Straits of Salamis, and the they can't maneuver around. The Athenians are, are used to now fighting the Persian ships. They've done mm-hmm. it. Um, so they're able to have a, a battle where they, if not sinking the ships, they capture them. They kind of bottleneck them in the strait, cutting off the supply line to the army. And the the land forces are victorious at Plataea as well. There's mm-hmm. just more of them. I think I think they had somewhere in the neighborhood of like 8,000 Spartans at that one. Mm-hmm. I think they, the rest of the army sort of showed up there. Is that like, do you have more of the Greek city-states involved in that one? I think so. I think so. I was doing a little bit of reading about the leagues, and we're going to be talking about them in a minute, but the, the Peloponnesian League was something that had been in existence for a long time. It doesn't really become operable until the, the Peloponnesian War, which we'll talk about. But it was called upon during the Persian War. So I think you had a lot of... Uh, city-states from the Peloponnese that showed up at Plataea to defend their portion of Greece or, or what was kind of left of Greece. And then probably any city-states that didn't roll over to Sparta um, as they after they defeated the, the, um, the Greek defense at Thermopylae, I, I think probably you had some uh, join up with them there. Um, but as far as as far as a full number of Greeks fighting at Plataea, I, I don't have that. Um, yeah, so I'm at least to not see here. readily available. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I I'm not sure. I I know that uh, I know that they're successful both at Plataea and at Salamis, but it, exactly how that pans out, I'm not a uh, I'm not probably as well versed as I should be there. Herodotus says. That the Greek city-states, somewhere between probably around a modern consensus, is probably 80,000. Okay. Herodotus says about 110,000 Greeks. Of course he does. Yeah. <laughs> and then for um, the Achaemenid, which would be the Persian mm-hmm. Empire, so Herodotus says 300,000, um, maybe be 350,000, but... Um, so what happened to the 2 million, he said, were at Thermopylae? They yeah, just go home after they burnt out. Snack, snack break. Um, <laughs> modern consensus is somewhere between seventy and one hundred twenty thousand. So that's a much more evenly matched. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, the losses, though, <laughs> Herodotus says two hundred fifty-seven thousand. Um, is this Dio Diodorus? Do you know Diodorus, the historian? There's another historian that says hundred thousand. Modern consensus by the Persians lost between fifty and nine hundred or ninety thousand, um, and then. So, like, everybody. Herodotus said, guess how much Herodotus said they lost. Take, the, take a the while. The Persians or the Greeks? The Greeks. So, he says the Persians he lost. He probably said the Greeks lost, like, five guys. Close. 159. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of outrageous. <laughs> um, you have Ephorius and Dio, Diodorus. I, don't, I haven't heard of those stories. I've heard of Plutarch before. Mm. They see about 10,000. Greeks. Okay, but so either even, way, even still, it's a, it's significantly less. Either way, they are just completely outmatched when it comes to battle um, tested individuals. Yeah, and I mean but. that's that's one of the things that's important too. One with the Persians, you have conscripted soldiers, uh, so they're not people who fight for country. They uh, they fight for money because they have to, um, and they're just used to a different style of fighting versus the Greeks, who are all 
used to fighting, even if they're not professional soldiers, they fight all the time. They tend to fight each other. I say, fight each other. And so then, um, then the technology difference. I mean, the Greeks not that the not that the Persians didn't have bronze or iron. They they certainly did. And by and large, they probably are more technologically advanced. But when it comes to warfare, they just they're not. They don't have heavily armored troops, at least not on foot. They're used to cavalry and light maneuvering and and making a quick battle, and that's just not how the Greeks fought. Not at all. Yeah, they could just couldn't. Couldn't hold together. Which does kind of become a problem for them later because they also tend not to adapt to, yeah. to that, which... Is their downfall. Yeah. Yeah, and then, so the victors of the overall Persian War would be the Greeks, and they, um, you know, Athens preserves democracy. The other Greek city-states preserve their own way of life, and they're not ruled by a foreign ruler. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Persians retreat back home. Uh, what happens to Xerxes after that? Do you, Does he, like... I don't know. Go home crying. I imagine he's he, not real pleased. I'd imagine uh, so. And he wrestled that, what was it, a lion or something? <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see. So Xerxes, well, he is assassinated in 466. Classic. You know, uh, so that's, what, about 15 years after the the Battle of, uh, yeah. Oh, of course he is assassinated at the hands of one of his... Um, bodyguards. Bodyguards. Dude, bodyguards are terrible. Yeah, if you, if you are going history. to be, if you're going to be a ruler, just just go without a bodyguard. Yeah, you're probably you're, safer. Yeah, I'd say you're safer. Or yeah. just mix. I don't know. Mix them up every day. Or, I yeah. don't even know. Put it. Put them on a rotation. Or just schedule. not be a terrible leader. I don't know. That's possible too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. All right. So we can move on from the Persian War. We know the Greeks won. Mm-hmm. And then we move on to the good old Delian League. Yeah, the Dillian League was set up, you know, the formation of the Dillian League. And the, the Dillian League was set up by Athens because they, um, they didn't want the Persians to attack them again. And if they did, they wanted to be ready for them. And what would happen if a smaller city-state got attacked? Well, they want help from a larger uh, force like Athens would have. So Athens essentially makes this Dillian League. They and, all join together. And at this time, this is when we start to see Pericles rising to prominence. I mean, Pericles was born in 494, so at the time of the Delian League, he's in his 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Is my math right there? Sounds like late 20s, maybe. Yeah, uh, late teens. Late teens? Late teens. So he, it's going to be after the Delian League is formed. Oh, uh, okay. He's yeah, going yeah, to be coming to, rising yeah. to prominence. But he's, he's kind of, I mean, if you're thinking of the Golden Age of Greece... You're thinking about Pericles, at least in Athens, that is. In his prime. Mm-hmm. And you have in 447, Pericles decides to build the Parthenon. Mm-hmm. But he, he does not pick up any blocks. I mean, this is not this is not a guy who's out there with a stone hammer and chisel working. I he mean, could have participated. He maybe. Could've. Maybe he did what politicians today do and, like, set the first stone in the ground, cut, cut a ribbon, and yeah. walk away. Yeah. I did it. I built it. No, yeah, he has it built, and this had been burned in, in Athens mm-hmm. with um, the burning of Athens, and but now this is more of a commemoration to yeah. the Persian War. Yeah, specifically the Battle of Marathon. Mm-hmm. The Greeks wanted to highlight their defeat of the or their you know their successful defeat of the Persians at Marathon using strategy, which just fits right in with mm-hmm. Athena. Um, so the, a lot of the images, uh, the, the relief carvings, uh, on the, on the Parthenon are images from the Battle of Marathon. Um, and then of course the, the great statue of Athena there, Athena Parthenos, um, done Made by it. Phidias. Mm-hmm. 
What do you have? She's made out of ivory and gold. Yeah. It's definitely uh, unreal. It, yeah, and it's huge. Uh, I have, what, like 50-some feet high at yeah. least, something like that. So question for you, since you've seen the one in Tennessee, is that one actually made of ivory and gold, the copy there? Yes. Okay. Part, not, all, no, not all of it. So, so, so it's like gilded. Something. Yeah. So okay. like it's not like completely solid gold, but like it is actual. Like if you chipped it off and like the flakes of it would be real gold. So I wonder if I wonder if the one in Greece, like in was antiquity, like was done in a similar way, or if it solid ivory, gold, and jewels. I, I I'd imagine probably at least. I, I don't. I want to say it would make sense for me at least that everything there would be authentic. Yeah, I mean, it's not their money they're spending. Right? Exactly, it's everybody yeah. else's. So, I, I yeah, yeah, I would see that they would. I would think that they would get all the gold that they possibly do, and all the ivory and so forth. Especially being, you know, so close to Egypt and Africa and so forth. And, and I guess you, if you're gonna build a, a temple to your goddess, you want to make it. As you don't want to slack on it. No, you don't want to. You don't want to use like great value gold or something like that. <laughs> great value gold, <laughs> equate brand uh, ivory. <laughs> So, yeah, it's dedicated. And now the Parthenon becomes a symbol of democracy mm-hmm. because it, essentially if they lose the Battle Marathon, they lose, you know, the Persian War, mm-hmm. that's it for democracy. You know, it ends right there and that they barely got their, their self started. Mm-hmm. And who knows what that means for the rest of the world, mm-hmm. essentially. So today in Athens, on top of the Acropolis, you have the Parthenon, which is a representation of democracy. And, I mean, we're going to come back and talk about this mm-hmm. period. We're, we're just glossing over it now because we want to spend some time talking about the people of the Golden Age. And, and this spills into a bit of later stuff, too. What we, what we call the Golden Age is the period really between, I guess, between the end of the Persian War and really kind of the end of the Peloponnesian War. But I, I would say that I would extend the learning that occurs there all the way through Greek culture and, I mean, even beyond, but... We'll probably focus on those guys in, in their own podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got this, the Delian League uh, and, and all the allies of uh, Athens. They do eventually make a peace treaty with Persia. So now you've got all this money and all these troops, and what are they going to do? So they start, um, you know, this uh, conflict with their neighbor, the, the Peloponnesian League, the, the Spartans and their... Their allies. It's sort of when you when you have two titans in the same territory, you can't have uh, two number ones. So there's going to be there's going to be conflict. There's going to be animosity, and it, this basically turns into into a war, a civil war in Greece. That's why the Tennessee Titans were never any good. <laughs> can't have titans. <laughs> Just too many titans. Too many titans. Yeah, and it starts this civil war, um, which we know as the Peloponnesian War. Mm-hmm. You have the. Um, the speech. So the speech was early on in the Peloponnesian War. Yeah, and I and I hadn't realized that in the beginning, but yeah, mm-hmm. the the speech is in in uh, four thirty. So uh, when you consider the war starts in four thirty one, it's it's right at the beginning. It's after the first year of it, and it's really meant to um, honor the, those who have died in the first battles of the Peloponnesian War. It's the funeral speech, and and this was kind of a common thing, I guess, in Greece where. They would have these mass funerals for for battles and soldiers who had died in battle, uh, to sort of you know I mean what are you going to do have six thousand individual yeah, funerals and, and you want the leaders to attend them also they have these mass funerals, um, and the speech Pericles really uses this as an opportunity not just to commemorate the fallen but also then to to talk about some key points, 
uh, in being Athenian and why being Athenian is important and why it is uh, special and why they are the best and really kind of drive that into if you are an Athenian, you need to be special, you need to be the best, you need to take ownership of your role in the government, of your role as a citizen. Um, and he really, really tries to drive that point home that, look, we're better than the Spartans are because they can't face us without all of their allies, and, and we're not afraid to face them without ours. Uh, we're better than the Spartans because we're good at fighting too, but we also take time to appreciate what's beautiful and the mind and, and care about our government and politics uh, instead of just beating each other up. You know, so he, he really turns to twist this, this funeral speech into a, a political play. Mm-hmm. That's well done too. Mm-hmm. For sure. Not that it serves him very well, because in a year he's dead. Um, <laughs> That's because of the plague. Darn typhus plagues. But you were saying with, you know, I was like comparing it to today, you know, we have like more individual mm. uh, funerals for soldiers that pass. Mm. But with that, it makes more sense for them to do a mass funeral because... Their, their lives are dedicated to the state, whether you're in Sparta or whether you're in Athens. Like, you, you are, yes, you have your own individuality, but you are essentially a big part of, of the state, the country. Mm-hmm. And so why not be in a big, massive funeral for your country because that's who you're fighting for anyways. Yes, you're fighting for your, your family and your friends and so forth, but that all is in conjunction with um, your nation. I want to read a, a quick part of it because I, I had to pull this up. So so what we know of, of his speech comes to us from Thucydides, who is a historian writing about sort of during, uh, he's at least living during the Peloponnesian War. Um, but so this is the speech of Pericles, which Thucydides wouldn't have actually been there to hear, but he's you know recounting this from maybe those who were there. Um, but so Pericles is said to have stated... Our constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern to others than imitators ourselves. Its administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If no social standing, advancement in public life falls to reputation for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit, nor does poverty bar the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. In other words, if you're a citizen, you're a citizen, and you can serve in government. It doesn't matter what, how much money you have, what your social standing is. As long as you are a citizen of Athens, you're expected to fill the role of citizenship, which is to vote, which is to participate in government, to say your piece, to hold office, um, all those kind of things. Yeah, I just I really like the the speech in general mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. And I like the way it's presented. Like the translations of it are pretty good because I mean mm-hmm. it, it doesn't sound out of place in today's not at politics all. at all. These are the kind of things that our politicians are telling us all the time. Very relevant. Yeah, extremely relevant. Um, so with the Peloponnesian War waging on, you have Sparta blocking off um, Athens, and people from the countryside are piling in to the Athens, the city, the walled city of Athens, and it's partly why it becomes so overpopulated, obviously why it becomes overpopulated, but also to why disease spreads, mm-hmm. why Pericles gets sick. What was the disease you said? Uh, they said it was some form of like typhoid fever. Typhoid, okay. And, and he dies. You know, the Athenian like leading statesman, you know, he's not a king, he's just kind of like the leading statesman at the time. 
And I think up to that point, the Peloponnesian War looked pretty good for the for the Athenians. Athenians. Like, it looked like they were. I mean, what were the Spartans going to do? They can surround the city on land, but we can still get stuff by ship. That's mm-hmm. why everybody retreated to Athens. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, they can surround us all they want. We're still going to get supplies. Yeah. Instead of trying to meet the Spartans in the field that they're they're good at, right? Don't meet them on land. Fight fight using you know small tactics that their colonies on sea. Elephant versus the whale. Yeah, exactly. The elephant versus the whale. And uh, eventually, Sparta gets smart, and they decide to Maybe. go with a former adversary, mm-hmm. Persia. They ask Persia for help, but not necessarily in like help battling Athens. No, no, it was more like, hey, let's not fight each other. Let's make sure we get that clear. Um, let's agree that we don't like Athens at this point. Um, let's not... Uh, worry about some of these other um, city-states that are maybe neutral. And, oh, by the way, can we borrow some boats? Um, borrow or buy? I'll buy. Um, yeah. But but part of the transaction was, was um, I guess, kind of in representative. More like, hey, when we beat Athens using your ships, you can have some of the land back that they, that they had from the Peloponnese, or from the Persian War that mm. they had taken control of. Um, which was a good deal for Persia because hey, what are we really risking? Here? Yeah, you know, what I mean, we're we're getting some payment for ships. We're getting the promise of more land if the Spartans are successful, and we don't really have to put any men in the field. So, where do you know where the land was at? Um, I think it was kind of in the the north, um, the northern part of Greece. Some of the territory that they had conquered on their way down, not not like maybe like near Thrace up the, up that way. That, the okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay, because Sparta didn't Sparta own. The Bosphorus Strait area. Yeah. yeah, and and Macedonia and, like, random other chunks of mainland Greece, mm-hmm. um, whereas Athenian colonies tended to be at sea. Yeah, gotcha. Well, they get those ships that they desperately needed, and the Spartans had their own ships to maybe a little bit, but not much, right? Yeah, I don't I don't think they... I mean, it's not like they didn't have a navy at all. They did have some ships. It just was but a they're, joke. They're not a, yeah, they're not a port city. So, so, I mean, it's more like the Peloponnesian League had some ships mm-hmm. okay. um, that were kind of tied to Sparta. So, but they knew how to sail, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And then they, they essentially... They blockaded the ships coming in mm-hmm. from into Athens via the um, ports and whatnot. That's kind of the... Striking blow there. Yeah, I mean, there it, it are some, starves them out, basically. There are some naval battles that are mm-hmm, ensue. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, that pretty much ends the Peloponnesian War, and Sparta is victorious mm-hmm. and it forces Athens to surrender in 404. They rule over Athens for like a year and a half or something like that. The, it's the, the year of 30 tyrants in Athens where you had some Spartan leadership there, but Eventually the year they, of 30 tyrants? Yeah, I guess they had, there were like 30 leaders from Sparta, 30 men that were kind of put over Athens. Simultaneously? I, as far as I know, it's simultaneously. That sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but but that doesn't last very long, obviously. Like, Sparta doesn't have the power to consolidate rule like that. And they're not they're not a, an imperial state. They're not like Athens. They don't have the navy to enforce an imperial policy. So they leave, and Athens gets back some semblance of democracy for a few years, at least, until 338. When Philip II up in the north in Macedonia, uh, after being held ransom or captive or hostage, whatever you want to call it, in Greece and I think Thebes for a period of time, learns how the Greeks fight and brings an invading force using horses, um, which was different for the Greeks. They're not used to fighting against them. They, mm. In fact, they took every step not to fight against them in Persia because mm. it, it, it crushes a hoplite phalanx. Yeah, well, I mean, definitely. The cavalry is just 
tough to fight against. And so 338, Battle of Chaeronea, um, really puts at least the northern part of Greece under under Macedonian rule. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I guess really that's kind of where we're going to wrap up this this episode. All right, yeah, we'll pick that up uh, later on. But this has been uh, SOL's 5D and 5F. This is, we talked about Peloponnesian War and the Persian War and a little bit of the um, Golden Age. So this is uh, Howell. This is Mr. Shank. And Mr. Woods. And the cause of fear is ignorance. And thank you for uh, joining us today. Have a good one.